Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. A good man forth, a good man out of good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Then men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept and put in its order. Then he goes and takes with them seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. While he was talking to the multitude, behold... His mother and brothers stood outside, seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside, seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Pray with me right away, if you would, please. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege of being in your word today. I pray that we would have so much fun in your word, that your word would burst open and come alive and that we would get it deeper or more meaningfully than we'd ever have. And I pray, Lord, today would be so perfect, so rich, so right. God, immerse me in your Holy Spirit that, God, that, that everything you want to accomplish would get accomplished. Every minute be perfectly spent, Lord, in every way that we would see your hand upon all of it. And, God, that today would be the day that we would say, Ah, oh, I just grabbed a hold of God like he seeks to grab a hold of me. And so, Lord, today, please, just may we be captivated in your word. May, Lord, what we need to hear be spoken. And may our hearts be perfectly ready. Lord, for what you have now in this time. We commit this time to you, Lord. Redeem every second we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the authority. Not man, not a council, but the God's proven, undeniably perfect word. Now, what we have in our text we are looking at from verses 33 to 50 is, if you will, a, the symphony of the almost. And that would be sort of our title today, by the way, if you will. The symphony of the almost. And it really kind of moves in four sections or four movements. Verses 33 to 37, 38 to 42, 43 to 45, and then 46 to 50. Four different places where what we'll find is, is that Jesus is speaking to a group of individuals. Here's our context. Jesus has sent out his twelve. They have gone into their cities to proclaim that the Lord is coming so that Jesus will actually not sort of show up coldly. And as, excuse me, and as he does, there is still a sea of disciples that are before him that he begins to teach. But as he begins to do that immediately, and we sort of see this as it kind of now continues to grow, the animosity and opposition of the Pharisees and the religious order of the day, well, they're becoming much more prominent as we look at this. As a matter of fact, what we kind of see in all of this is that really, when we kind of look at our text in verse 2, the Pharisees show up and say it's not lawful to, to break the Sabbath by eating. 
the way that they were eating. In verse 14 then, they plotted to destroy Jesus when Jesus then actually had a man in the synagogue stretch out his withered hand, no longer withered at that point. In verse 24 then, the Pharisees will actually then make claim, and that's what we saw last week, that Jesus' miracles were actually done by the power of Satan. And Jesus listens to them and then responds back with this, do you really even hear what you're saying? Loose paraphrase. Again, don't just believe me. But how in the world, why in the world would Satan cast out Satan? That would seem pretty counterproductive. And the reason I say that is Jesus is still addressing those religious leaders now, but I understand that's only part of his audience. As he's addressing them, and the point is, is that there's still a bunch of disciples, and remember, disciple, the word mathitikos in the Greek, it just means students. Jesus' students are watching how Jesus is handling the incumbent religious party that Jesus really has handed the P45 to, to use these crazy fishermen and ragtag Galileans to really step up and to actually transform the world. So put yourself in the shoes, if you will, the sandals of the disciples watching Jesus deal with these religious leaders. And understand, it's with a broken heart and anger at the same time. Like a parent who would be frustrated because what he really wants is a child to really get with it. He loves them, but on the other hand of it, he's really frustrated with the purpose. You guys really should be getting with this. And the problem here, and please hear me, is the problem of the almost. Is that getting close, well, getting close really just doesn't work. For instance, October 26, 2006, Kenyan Robert Cheruyot, by the way, in the Chicago Marathon, has now been beating, as he traditionally does, everyone. The, the guy that always seems to get second place actually is his own teammate, but could you imagine always sort of running behind the guy that always gets first? Well, the problem is, much like London, and Chicago and London are very similar, even in weather patterns often, that there is one of those misty October days where the ground is a little moist and one of the primary sponsors for the London Marathon, I'm sorry, for the Chicago Marathon was the LaSalle Bank, who decided that they would, as they would assume to do, put a decal right at the finish line. Well, this is what happens with the problem of the almost. Take a look at this, if you will. There he is. He has there done it. Is. Robert Chariot. Oh. Did, he, did he cross the line? I believe he did, did cross the line. Did he cross the line? Unfortunately, and look at, of course, his teammate, really happy but mixed emotions, right? Like, hey, I got first, but how'd you get first, right? Well, unfortunately, Robert will actually suffer external and internal bleeding through this. He'll be taken to the hospital. He'll be in pretty serious condition for a couple of days because needless to say, when he fell backwards, he hit his head. Now, 26 miles of being in front, 26 miles of that moment with the banner in front of you, 26 miles, that slipping at that moment, well, it just kind of changes everything, doesn't it? Well, take a look at this one, for instance, with the Tour de France. One of the problems with the Tour de France is that bicyclists, well, they tend to always kind of get that spot where they can uh, celebrate a little prematurely. Like, yeah! Oh! Um, well, uh... Poor guy had been ahead the entire race. But unfortunately, it's that last moment. It's how you finish that matters. The almost doesn't count. And here's a classic almost that doesn't count. The World Cup. Quarterfinal. 2010. Ghana versus Uruguay. Last seconds extra time. Penalty kick given to Ghana. All he has to do is kick this in. It's a penalty kick and they win. Almost. Here's the problem. Could you imagine being this poor fella? Please understand something. Saying you're a little bit better than, saying you got a little bit more in your pocket than the next person, isn't going to cut it. Paul, when he finishes his life, sitting in the Mamertine prison, awaiting to get his head lopped off by Nero, 
says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. And now there is awaiting me a crown of righteousness which the Lord has promised to me and to all of those who have loved His appearing. Paul knew how important it was that almost isn't enough. In our text here, we have four different places where Jesus is going to address this. And my prayer today is actually that as we go through this, that we will be challenged to make sure that all four of these are maintained. Because if not, we find ourselves at the danger of the almost. Now, please understand, Jesus is speaking to religious leaders that are supposed to be the icon of good religion. Now, religion was supposed to be a negative term. It was never intended to be a negative term. It means devoted. We should be the most religious people on the planet because we have the greatest thing to be devoted to, the greatest one to be devoted to. It's become negative because we forfeited the term to people who are devoted to infinitely less important things. Jesus starts in verse 33. Look at it with me. Our first movement, 33 to to 37. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Either make the tree good and the fruit good, or make the tree bad and make the fruit bad, because the tree is known by it. When you buy an apple tree, you expect to get apples from it. When you buy a peach tree, you expect to get peaches from it. Brood of vipers is a family of snakes. You're aware of that. Family will be a key in part of this. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you, oh, that in every idle word that men may speak, they will have to give account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Now, understand, this is one of those strange places where Jesus actually looks and he goes, I don't get it. You confuse me. I I don't understand. Now, how strange would that be? God in the flesh, Jesus looking, and he goes, do you see how confusing, how convoluted this thing is? Because somewhere in all of this, the trees, I know the tree is bad, so why this fruit? Because there's good fruit. Strange, because the last thing they did, according to our text, was actually said Jesus was doing this by the power of Satan. Clearly, that's not good fruit. But understand, in our first situation, what Jesus tells us through all of this is that you can't just have deeds, you've got to have words. Did you notice that in that? And our first of our four movements, the almost is deeds without words. But please understand, here is our problem, is that the church in mass today starts to get this idea that if we disconnect from eternity, we could do nice things and people will wake up Christian. But the Bible tells us in Colossians that no matter what you do, by it in word, be it in word or in deed, do it in the name of Jesus Christ. There is nothing we are to do that we don't give glory to God for. Because what happens is it confuses. Now, being around the world and we get these places where something tragic takes place. And then we, in some cases we've had the privilege of being right on the front lines during some of those moments. And you watch people and they're starving and they're, they're confused, they're frightened. Their entire city has been decimated by a tsunami or by an earthquake or whatever. And you get in there and what you watch is, is you go, listen... We want to help you, but we want you to know this is because Jesus is leading us to do so. The Jesus of the Bible. And at first, governments will say, you can't do that. And then you say, well, we'll wait. We are not going to do it otherwise. We were told that by Israel. We've delivered ten and a half tons of relief to both sides. And when they say, well, you can't do that, you can't give stuff away and and tell them about your, your religion, I say, you know what, well, then we're not going to do it. We are not coming there and doing it without the name of Jesus. And what's been, by God's grace, both in Africa and in Israel, we've seen them relent and say, well, you know what, if that's what you have to do, just do it quietly. So I don't mind whispering it loudly or however that works. The point is this, beloved, that with the religious leaders, on one side of it, he says, look at what's happening with your words. And clearly their words were very condemning to Jesus. Which is strange to think that somebody representing God would condemn God. That sounds a little strange, doesn't it? What Jesus says is, from the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. Does it concern you? Because it concerns me. 
Understand, Jesus doesn't say if there's a little bit of it in your heart, it's going to fall out of your mouth. But it is so crammed now and overflowing out of your heart, it spills out your mouth. In other words, your mouth is the overflow valve for your heart. So by the time it comes out of your mouth, your heart is full of it. And imagine Jesus looking and saying, well, what's falling out of your mouth right now? Not the stuff that's scheduled. You know, there's lyric and you're singing and you go, well, I praise God. I mean, sure, because it was the song was playing and you knew the lyric that was to be sung and you sang the lyric. But what about that point where it's just like what spills out of your mouth when someone bumps into you? Because let's face it, if, you're, if you have a cup and it's full of something, well, the moment it gets bumped and nudged, it's going to spill it. The way that it spills out of us is our mouths. He goes, what's falling out of your mouth? Because Jesus says, let me warn you, I'm not just talking about the stuff that's so evil that it's clearly and obviously evil, but what about the idle things? i got to tell you, this really condemns me. Well, it convicts me because I, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. But there's a part of me that looks and goes, how much of my words really are meaningless? Interesting, by the way, and not to pick on anyone, but the Greek word for, for here for idle also means unemployed, or worthless, or vain, and the word is argos. Did you not? Spelled the same as the store. I, I, yeah, you'll remember that word now. And Jesus says, listen, a good tree reaches down into that heart, and out of its mouth come kind things, come praise, come that which edifies The challenge is let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that we may know how to answer everyone. Well, think about what grace is. Grace, in its simple sense, charis, like charismatic, means gift. What if, what if every time we spoke, it was a gift? Not by our weird estimation, but genuinely. Could you imagine what that would be like? I think some of us, certainly myself, would spend a lot less time talking. But, by the way, those that would be around you would spend more time listening, too. But it wasn't just that your speech should always be full of grace, but it should be seasoned with salt. Seasoned with salt, by the way, we know salt speaks about that which endures. And might I just say, reconnecting to eternity, that everything we say somehow should sort of reek of heaven, Reek of the fact that we are now no, we are no longer just temporary beings on this planet. We're, I mean, we're always going to be, every, every human being is eternal. We were all created. We had a beginning, but we'll stand before God's judgment. But we have actually had the blessing of actually being connected by the God of eternity and having all of our sins and our filth and all of our grime washed away so we can stand before Him holy and innocent and pure and understand in that we represent that. We are travel agents to a place. We are realtors or to a place we've never really lived. And that's why this should be so important because this should look much more like heaven than it should the earth. This is the only place where all people of the like mind are actually collecting. And Jesus looks and says, how can you speak Moses' words? How can you speak good words? When you as a tree are clearly not, clearly not a decent tree. Interesting, Jesus will actually warn them. He'll talk about saying that the religious leaders sit in Moses' seat, so do what they say. But don't do what they do. In our first case, the challenge here again is deeds without words. That's a terrible almost. But unfortunately, it's a common almost. We show up at the shores of places now where these terrible tragedies have taken place in the name of Jesus. And what you find is the need is there. They're ripe for the gospel. And you go in and you tell them about the gift of Jesus. And people say that's opportunist. And I would say absolutely it's opportunist. What's wrong with that? Why would I not want to seize opportunity for people to come to know Jesus? How could that be bad? And then what happens is you start to tell them everyone is evil. Every human being is evil. 
And Jesus died for every human being. And they turn and they say, but those people are nice. They're not Christian, but they're nice. And look at how they're doing all of these same things you're doing selflessly and kind and just full of all of this mercy. And they're not Christian, only to turn out they really are a Christian group, but they're just not telling them. And then how do you explain that? Well, uh, well, those, well, they're still evil. Well, and they're evil in being silent. Now, I'm not telling you don't do nice things. What I'm telling you is, whatever you do, be it in word or deed, do it in the name of Jesus. Now, what happens? Now, you know this, and, and I do too, that the moment we mention Jesus, someone's going to freak out about it. So let me just say to that, yes, yes, that will happen. And in love, get over it now and do what you're supposed to. Me too, by the way. I'm hearing these exhortations. We are to be bold. Second then, Jesus then says then from verse 38 to 42. The scribes answered, the scribes and the Pharisees, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, Answered means they're responding to this by saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now understand what a sign is. A sign is supposed to be something supernatural, transcending, that validates a message. You take this little flat area or this flat area right here. If you put no words on it, it's a wall. The moment you put words on it, it's a sign. And they say, we want to see a sign, not like raising the dead or healing these guys or doing all these things that he's already done, that any of these are going to mean anything to him. Jesus is going to make that clear in the parable of the Lazarus and the rich man. But in this, they say, well, we want to see a sign. And really interestingly, look at verses 39 to 42. He answered and he said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For Jonah, as Jonah was three days and three nights, in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be then, three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn them, condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Now, please don't miss this. These men have come up now, the religious leaders, intensifying their opposition. And they're like, we want you to do something else to prove yourself. We want you to look at, we want you to do something that proves you are who you say. That's what they're saying. Do something that proves what you say is for real. You know what Jesus says? He says, why don't you do something that proves what you say is real? Because what he does is he turns the table. He says, look at the men of Nineveh. They were as evil as evil gets. I mean, these people would skin someone alive while they were still alive to watch them scream to death. They would take meat hooks, forgive me for being so graphic, but to give some illustration, and stick them in the bottom of people's jaws and drag them back just so that they would instill fear. They would rip women, pregnant women open, and remove the babies and kill the baby in front of the mother before she dies. Forgive me for being so open, but you need to know this is the people that Jonah didn't want to go preach to for good reason. Jonah was happy to head the other direction. But when Jonah went there, there was no message of love. There was no warm, squidgy, oh, God loves you. This was 40 days and you're toast. That was the message. And they, Jesus said, those guys, when they heard, did something about it. They repented. The Queen of South, when she heard about Solomon, she did something about it. She came to listen. Where's your sign? And here's my question to us. As Christians, well, where's that side? If you were to say, Jesus, I need you to see something else spectacular now. I really want to put my trust in you, but I need to see something to remind me that you're for real. And Jesus says, can I see something that shows me you're for real? I've heard it said that if being a Christian was a crime, and that's still debatable, would there be enough evidence to put me away? In the first case, the dangerous almost was deeds without words. In the second case, clearly, it's words without deeds. That's exactly James's point. 
When James writes the book of James, a book Martin Luther had such a problem with, he called it an epistle of straw, because he said, faith with works, there's the problem. Seeing people go, well, wait a minute, isn't it supposed to be faith enough? Well, what James was dealing with was, to be honest, our generation, because what they were saying is, I believe in Jesus, but they weren't doing anything. It isn't faith with works in the simplest sense, it's faith that works. It's that does something. If you really trust, you're going to do something about it. What James says is, oh, wow, you, you say you have faith and you believe that God is one? He goes, even the demons believe that and shudder. I mean, even the demons who clearly aren't going to heaven could tell you God is one, and they at least have brains enough to, to freak out about it. What's it doing to you? So please understand in the second case, the almost is, yeah, I decided to call myself a Christian. Well, what did that mean? Well, to be honest, I did it because I didn't want to go to hell. That would be like, if you will, Bruno decided one day that he sees some famous movie star and he looks and he says, wow, she the deal. And he starts running around and says, I've just decided that I am married to that woman. Now, there's part of us that would be kind of tender and be like, oh, bless the poor guy. Have you met her? No. But it doesn't matter. I've decided that. Well, what evidence do we see? What fruit do we see from that? And unfortunately, there were a lot of people doing the same thing with Jesus. They're kind of going, well, I've decided I'm a Christian. I have no interest in a relationship, per se, because all I really want is to claim it. Now, in Brutus' case, he might actually have an interest in a relationship. It just, whether it's required or not, we don't know. But Jesus looks and he looks at these religious leaders and he says, here's the problem. The things that you do that are actually decent, you don't do in God's name, you do for yourself. And when you actually do speak the right things, you don't back it up with the right words or with the right deeds that should follow with it. I mean, let me ask you, what is Jesus? When we talk about Jesus, what does he give us? What is he in our lives? We talk about how he brings us peace. He's our peace. He's our joy. He's given us a love that transcends, that initiates, that isn't, that isn't in any way resistant to the response more than it is to the kindness of being overflowing and just wanting to dump that love on individuals. We, we tell people these things. We tell them, all right, Jesus really is my joy. And then we had a hard time, and guess what? People start looking. Because just like the situation with Job, I mean, in the world being under the sway of the wicked, when you can say, well, of course he praises you. Look at how good his life is. But I tell you what, let him go through some hard times, then let's just see him curse you to your face. He's not going to be the same guy once the hard times hit. So what happens? You go through a hard time and people start watching. How are you going to respond to that? Is Jesus really your joy now? Because now it means something. Is Jesus really your peace when there's total discord? Because people are watching now. I think it was Corey Tenboom who said, you never know that he's all you need until he's all you have. But in those things, as they start getting stripped away, let me ask you, what, what, are you, what are you holding on to? I mean, is what we proclaim about Jesus being nullified? Well, in, not in truth, but in regards to our own testimony of him. Because the life we live really contradicts. I don't know if you've ever heard it said. I've heard some, you know, what you do, talk so loud I can't hear what you say. The problem is we should be doing both. There should not be deeds without words, nor should there be words without deeds. In both cases, beloved, we find ourselves in this place where God's like, please, 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 don't be stuck with the almost. And now he takes it home with the last two. So then... Jesus starts tearing into them in a, in a kind way, but very seriously in verses 43 through 45 when he says, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Now, does that verse weird you out like it does me? I'm like, goes through dry places. Are people like wet? And then he leaves like us and then there's dry. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to go with it, but it's clearly not the point. Clearly, when it says goes out of a man, this is a man. So this is somebody possessed. Someone comes in here and they're possessed. Prayerfully, they would freak out the moment they stepped in. The Bible, by the way, does make clear possession is a real thing. And the Bible also makes clear you don't have to be a trained exorcist 
to cast out a demon. We went there last week. We talked about that. All you need to do is know the one and have him live inside of you that is greater than he who is in the world. It's his job to do the work. Biblically, that's simple. it's that simple and clear. All of the other doctrines come from Hollywood. So a spirit's driven out of a man. Verse 44, it says, then he goes, well, he goes through dry places seeking rest. Remember that rest? Isn't that how the last chapter ended? Jesus said, if you just come to me, I'll give you rest. Well, certainly demons aren't going to find it. And he finds none. Verse 44, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they will enter and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. So shall it be with this wicked generation. How utterly concerning is this? I can't help but think of Mary Magdalene. We read, out of whom Jesus had cast seven spirits, seven demons. Now, how many demons could fit in a person? Well, it doesn't matter. One's too many for me. How about you? Do we really want to know? But please understand how imperative this is. I get the words without deeds and deeds without words. Those are pretty simple. But please understand, what Jesus says is, you're basically like a house. And as you're basically like a house, this evil spirit has gone and make it. By the way, the Bible does make clear, nowhere in Scripture do you ever see a Christian possessed by a demon. That's about as crazy to me as a demon possessed by a Christian. Anyways, but imagine, here's somebody who doesn't know the Lord and a demon's dwelling inside of him and this demon is cast out and the demon comes and takes a look back in the house and as he looks back in the house, he sees it's, listen, it's swept. That means it's clean or at least tidy and in order. But that's only two of the three things he tells us there. And this is unfortunately what was happening with the religious leadership and unfortunately what happens in a lot of the world and the church if we're not careful. Like church is a life improvement program. You know, we come to church because our lives are mucked up. They're really messed up. There's problems all over the place and everything is just a mess. And so God straighten up my mess. I'm tired of... Wondering whether I have a disease. I'm tired of wondering whether there'll be a worn out for my arrest. I'm tired of waking up feeling like, what did I do last night? I'm tired of feeling like everything I do has no purpose or meaning. And you go through all of these things where you're so tired of it. And you're like, you know, all I really want is my life in order. And that was the difference as Daniel spoke about Philip's testimony yesterday at the baptism. For years he was trying to get his house in order. See, it says not just swept and in order. But he also says about when the demon comes back, he finds it empty. And there's the problem. Is that you were not created. Well, let me just say this. Even you yourself are not that skin that you sit in. That's just the tent you carry around. The good news is you'll be... You'll be relieving and retiring that jersey one day. And you will stand before the Lord. But please understand, Jesus did not create you so that your house could simply be in order. He created you so that he could live with you. See, what David spoke in the Psalms is the heart of God. When David said, one thing I have desired of the Lord and there and that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. If like David could have anything. When David wanted to build God a house, it wasn't because what David wanted was just to have a good neighbor. David wanted to build a house for God so that he could go and move in there and live there himself. And God looks and says, hey, Sam, that tent you live in, I'd like to live in there with you. Because the moment we give our life to Jesus Christ, according to Ephesians 1.13, God sealed you with His Holy Spirit. God came and made His dwelling inside of you. And there's the difference. Is where certainly words without deeds and deeds without words are terrible almost. The third would be, if you will, tidying without tendency. I mean, the idea of trying to get my life straight... Well, wait a minute, but what if I try, don't I have to get my life straight before coming to Jesus? No, how about the other side of it? Why don't you instead you come and you give God your messed up life and then let Him come in, move inside, and fix it from the inside out? Isn't that what really walking with Jesus is all about? 
And this is the difference between Jesus and every other religion, where what you're trying to do is you're trying to clean this thing up and then present it and go, is this good enough? But the moment I said yes to Jesus, God said, well, I've got a whole new blueprint because what I'd like to make you now is a cathedral, a sanctuary, a, a temple where I can dwell and just emanate my glory everywhere. And I want that for you specifically. I want to shine through you in such a way so that when people look, they go, wow, whoever lives in there must be awesome. And that's the point. The problem is with the religious leaders. They weren't interested in that. See, the reason why we kind of like it, interestingly enough, even though we feel like our life is out of control, if we could kind of get things in order, we could kind of get to where we think we can control it again. And we know that if we hand our lives over to Jesus, we have to surrender that control to him. And that takes faith and that takes humility, things which don't really come naturally. But God has dealt each person a measure of faith. Romans makes that clear. And every time we open up the word, we read, by the way, faith comes by hearing and not the word of God. Right now, God is dumping into your account more trust. That's what the word faith means. And in that, the question is, where are you going to spend it? And if you're going to spend it on Jesus, what you're going to find is he's going to rip stuff out of your life you might actually even like. But please hear me. God is not a God of nots. He's a God of instead of. And he never just removes. He replaces For everything he rips out, he will replace with something better. And Jesus looks and he says, here's the problem with this guy. Is this poor guy, by the way, his life was messed up. He was possessed. It doesn't get any worse than that. And yet, well, it does in a sense wait at the end of the story. But then what you find is it goes from this to where, okay, well, this demon's now out of his life. And his house is actually, his life's kind of in order. But not for long. And you watch people. Man, they have a problem with gambling or they have a problem with alcohol or they have a problem with lust and pornography. And, they, and what happens is they're kind of going, well, I just want that out of my life. But please understand, no matter what it is, it's not just wanting, it's not enough to want it out of your life. It's like, God, get it out of my life and then take its place. Jesus, take its place. Jesus tells us, by the way, for what it's worth, we are all addicts. Because Jesus says, whoever sins is a slave to it. We are all addicted to sinning. We are addicted to it. And unless Jesus killed the addict and created a whole new person, we will always be one. But by God's grace, the moment I said yes, he slayed that man, nailed him to a cross, buried him, and gave me a new person. That is no longer under the tyranny of that sin. Glory to God. Are you just coming to, is Jesus a means to an end? Is it Jesus to clean up my life? Or is Jesus the end? He tells us, isn't he, doesn't he, that he is the beginning and the end, the first and the last? So, words without, deeds without words, words without deeds, tidying without tenancy. The good news is Jesus doesn't just come and live inside of us, he comes and he becomes the landlord. Glory to God for that. Jesus would say about these same religious leaders, and boy, do you think he's just warming up? Wait till we get to Matthew 23. He's going to lay into them in a way that you'll be like, oh, no, you didn't. He's going to get so clear. He's going to call them sons of hell. He's talking about how they get in the way of other people's salvation. Oh, he has a real problem with these guys. But in the midst of that, or actually say as he starts to rub up Matthew 23, 27, he calls them whitewashed tombs. He goes, on the outside, you look so pretty. You're all nice and, and coated and painted up. Your paint job's really sweet. He goes, but inside, you're full of dead man's bones. And by the way, for a Jewish person, getting near a dead man's bones would keep you defiled and you wouldn't be able to enter into the temple. And I understand why. God was just like, look, if you're going to hang around with dead stuff, don't hang out with a bunch of people afterwards because... Well, bad things hang around with dead things. And I don't want you to share those with everyone. I get it. Then we get to our last text. And I want you to recognize that this all prepares us for one of the most amazing, beautiful chapters in all of Scripture about what it really looks like between the politic and the person of Christianity in chapter 13. He's going to give seven beautiful parables about the kingdom of heaven. Please don't miss it. They go in a beautiful, clear, logical route. In preparation for that, in this altercation Jesus has, 
now as Jesus is in the middle, if you will, what appears to be in the middle of kind of getting off on these guys, his family shows up to interrupt. And it's a lot more than meets the eye here. By the time we get to Mark, we get even more clarity. The verses here, notice verses 46 to 50 say this. While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold now, Jesus then, that tells me that Jesus is sort of segging out of just talking to the Pharisees about this spirit driven from a house and now speaking to the disciples who were around him as well. Behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. He answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? He stretched out his hand towards his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and mother. You go, what? In Mark, we read in Mark 30, I'm sorry, Mark, there isn't Mark 30, Mark 3, verse 20. When the multitudes had come together, as Jesus we have here, it's our parallel situation, so that they could not even so much as eat bread. When his own people heard about it, they went to lay hold of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. You see, Jesus had at least four brothers, Jim, Joe, Jude, Simon, and sisters. That means outside of Jesus, he had at least a six-pack of siblings. Jesus was clearly the oldest. How would you like to be Jesus' younger brother? How many times do you think Joseph or Mary said, why can't you be like your big brother? And what happens is somewhere down the line, even with all that Jesus is doing, Jesus' mother says, that boy's gone and lost his mind. Now, I don't know if it really is officially the role of the mother to freak out and worry about their children. Seek to step in when she sees something disconcerting. But imagine you're rescuing God. That's a little strange. But she hasn't just gone alone. It isn't like mom just wants to pull you aside and say, honey, I'm really getting concerned about you. She brings her brother's I'm sorry, Jesus' brothers. And that tells me this is a little bit more than a private meeting. This is an intervention. Now, now think that through for a moment. Are the four boys going to pick up Jesus and carry him back to mom's house? You know, there are things that are painful. You know those moments when a dear friend turns coat on you and gets really weird and you don't know what in the world happened and how? Those moments when you watch somebody that had been walking in the Lord and now they've kind of bailed out of the whole situation. You go, what just happened? But there is a specific spot for family. That somehow evades so much of our filters and protections. That somehow gets straight at the heart. And it hurts. You're raised thinking your mom and dad are right. Even if your mom and dad were getting you to smoke pot or give you heroin or challenge you in ways that you know were not proper. There's still something inside that you have to kind of almost consciously push aside to say, "Mm." I mean, unless you're a teenager, then you say no to your parents and everything. But but somewhere down the line, you're just like, you know, "Mm, I don't know, man. It just seems so crazy. And somewhere down the line, you look and the parents are like, you know, we're really concerned here. Imagine your parents pulling you aside with your brothers. That might be a little easier to fight over. So we're really, really concerned here. You know, you're just, you're not taking the breaks you should. Afraid you're going to die prematurely. We're really concerned about you. 
we think you've gone overboard. You've lost any sense of objectivity. You've kind of just gone crazy on us. And if it's your mother, if you have any decent relationship, and certainly Jesus seemed to have a decent relationship with Mary. There's a part of you that kind of goes, is she right? What, what, what is she, why is she saying that? Now, clearly, I don't think Jesus had that much of a challenge in that, but I imagine it still would have hurt a great deal. Jesus' response, if you notice in our, in our text here, as we round this to close, I don't know if I were Mary or the brothers, I would have been in any way satiated, but more probably convinced that he was a little crazy. Imagine, you kind of come and you're like, oh, that brother of mine, he's always been different than the rest of us. You know, he's always seemed like everything he did was perfect. And now it's like, okay, well, he's clearly gone off the rails now. Let's go get him. And then you imagine someone's like, hey, by the way, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are out there to get him. And he goes, well, who are my brothers? Who are my sisters? Who's my brother? Who's my sister? Who's my mom? You are. Now, which one of you as a brother wouldn't go... Yep, that confirms it. He's clearly bought the farm. So what's he doing here? Certainly not trying to hurt his mother. He's certainly not trying to hurt his brothers. We do know, by the way, from Scripture, his brothers did not believe before his resurrection. So Jesus has a family full of unbelievers. I mean, that's got to be rough. God in the flesh walking among guys that claim to believe God because they're Jewish, but they don't believe that their brother is. Well, that's reasonable, right? I mean, nope, it isn't like you think, well, my brother's probably God. And if you do think that, chances are, well, I'm fairly confident you're wrong. But understand what Jesus is telling us is the danger of the fourth almost. And that is, notice, what he, notice the one relationship he doesn't add to that. Mother, brother, Sister, which is the one missing? Father. And why is that? Because Jesus knows very clear who his father is. See, what they all had in common was that father. In John chapter 20, Jesus says, by the way, I ascend to my God and your God, to my father and your father. Why do we have the same father? Well, because God has not given us again a spirit of bondage again to fear. We've received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Daddy, Abba, Father, Romans 8.15. You see, here's the key in all of this. The reason, the danger, if you will, is fatherhood without family. You see, there's someone on the line, and it's going to be a bigger movement. I'm convinced of it as things go on, because the church has this way where it seems to swing from one extreme to the other. It all depends on what the thing is. On one side of it, God's got to be really, really holy, but on the other side, God's got to be really accessible. I mean, here's the great thing. Faith says two irreconcilable things still fit in the same universe because God's just God, and he's big enough for both. So what happens is, we say, well, God needs to be accessible, so we get this whole Jesus movement of, well, we're going to be seeker-friendly. Here's the problem. Scripture makes clear nobody seeks after God. So what are they seeking, and how are we trying to meet that? Because Romans makes clear, no one seeks after God. They want the stuff of God, they just don't want God. But we're going to make, him, we're going to make Jesus you know, accessible. So what does that mean? We're going to put Jesus in a pair of jeans, and Jesus is my homeboy, and then I like to go. And then it's like Jesus gets like, but he loses his holiness to do all of that. And then so what happens is now you've got to make him holy. Well, how do you make a guy that's in jeans and now he's like, I'm just here to hang out with my bros? Now how do you make him holy? Well, now you've got to go and you're going to sort of stick him behind a wall and you light candles and you get barefoot and you get all esoteric. But the crazy part is somewhere in between you can actually say, whoa, God is actually totally holy, but he's totally accessible. And that would blow my brains if it wasn't for the fact that faith just says they both exist. Someone says, well, God is totally sovereign, but then man totally has a responsibility for his choice. And they say, well, which side do you pick? And I'm like, faith just says God's big enough to make both happen. And you go, well, how do you explain? I'm like, I can't. He's bigger than that. There's the beauty in it. I go to sleep at night and I go, God's in control. Thank you, Lord. But then I also know I'm responsible for my choices. There's something beautiful in that. And here's one of those areas. 
Like on one side, we get this, well, what really makes a difference is if we have a church with lots of people. And then let's show it on screens in other campuses so that they can go and say, well, you know what? I actually have 40,000 people watching me. And I'm not trying to diss that. Well, I am. But anyways, but you know, you get to this point where it's like, well, who's your pastor? Who have you been like, hanging out? Who's been teaching you? Well, some guy in a screen in Atlanta or something. I don't know. And you know, and somewhere down the line, but where are you at? And you're like, well, I don't know. I'm like in like Scotland, you know? Well, who's your pastor? Oh, no. I'm not trying Listen, somewhere down the line, you know, it goes to this place where what it is, it's like, how do you personally walk among sheep and serve them? Not as a celebrity, but as a servant. I came here to do that. And you get that. But what happens is when it gets that way, people go, oh, I don't want that. That's a bad model. So let's go and let's do like a house thing where it's like where it's just going to be like me and like one person that I agree with. And we're going to get like private and we're going to get over here and we're going to do our own thing. And we're going to be like, okay, we're not going to do any of all that stuff. We're going to do like, well, I don't know. What do you want to sing? I don't know. What's your favorite song? You know, and we get to this. But what happens is then it gets this isolated thing. And it's like every molecule of the body of Christ has become decimated from the last one. And then it's like, it's all weird. And then we go, whoa, whoa, we're all total strangers. We don't even know each other. What do we do now? I know we need to get into where we get together and we're all together. So let's go back over here. And the thing just keeps going back and forth and back. But somewhere between it says that they were in the temple and in the house daily. And it wasn't like you were removed, we moved their streams. Well, what you did in all of that was, was that you actually said, God's big enough that we should do both. Now, not the screen thing, but then where we kind of like, let's make sure that we meet as a family because God actually wants us to try gifts on each other and serve each other and be selfless with each other. And you've got to do that with family. So we do all of that here, but then we get alone too. And it's like, then we have fellowship. And fellowship isn't just, hey, wasn't it cool? We all ate cake. Fellowship was like, hey, well, Sam, let's get together and read the Word. Or, Daniel, let's get together and let's pray for people. Or, wouldn't it be cool if we kind of did this? See, the problem is, if one's weak, well, then the other one is going to suffer too. But what happens is when people don't have this time here, this intimate time, well, then they blame it on the other. It's like, well, what if we really actually said, well, you know, what we all have in common is not our color. That's clear. Not our age. Not our background, not our nationalities, not our citizenships in a lot of cases. But what we do have in common is we have the same dad, and I'd like to think we all want to be like him. In other words, our past is what separates us. Our future is what unites us. Isn't that what we should do? Well, you don't understand. What I really want is to be more like people like me. Yeah, you know what that does? Is it becomes so insular, it becomes really, to be honest, it becomes... Non-productive. I watched that because people asked, well, did we have a college group back in California? And to be honest, there were like 600 college students coming. So they were like, oh, well, it's just church. Why did they all meet at church? I'm like, because they have times where they can meet as a group. But you actually have to be in places, and here's the hard part. You have to be in places where people aren't like you, but love Jesus. So you don't make it about being... Italian, Ghanaian, you know, Hungarian, you know, whatever it is. You know, it's like where it's like, okay, well, we're the British church. We're the white church. We're the young church. We're the old church. We're a church with tattoos. You know, we're the church. We wouldn't do tattoos. You know, it's like what happens when we all get together is the world kind of looks and goes, no group of people like this hangs out except the church. Isn't that what it should be? And then we really do become so strange that the world starts to wonder why. We can't just say, well, we've got a fatherhood. Now that we've got a fatherhood, okay, let's have the black service at 6, the white service at 7, or whatever, or maybe reverse those. It all depends on where you think you're going to be and getting late. And, you know, whatever. And, and here's the goofy part about it. Is then we kind of look at each other, and we're doing exactly what God said man does. Looking at the outside while he looks at the heart. Inside, we all bleed the same color. And we've all been washed by the same blood, if he said yes to Jesus. So as we go to prayer, I just would like to ask, are any of these areas areas right now that are in serious need of repair and mending in our own lives? Like, you know what, I don't mind doing nice things, but I have a real problem getting bold about the name of Jesus. Can I say, then let's pray for God to make us bold. Jesus actually, and this is very loose paraphrase, but he says in Acts 1, I know you guys are chickens. 
But when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, I'll give you power. Dunamis is the word. It literally means the ability to overcome resistance. I'll give you the ability to get over yourself. Isn't that the greatest resistance you face? It isn't me. Or maybe the problem is that you would love to be all talk, but you're no action. Well, then may God put legs on us. So we could show up here and say hallelujah, but at home we're still doing things we know are nowhere reconciling with Him. We're going to go to the table in communion now, right after we pray. And let me ask you, are you ready to come right? Maybe in their place, but what you're really trying is you're just trying to tidy up your life, but what you really don't recognize is instead of tidying up your life, you're doing you're preparing yourself for something worse. Is that what you really want? Or do you want to say, Jesus, don't just come and live here, but make yourself at home here. And then lastly in this, well, then God, will you make us a family? Put me around people different from me, because what I really want is to grow from that. To realize that, that there, this isn't such a kooky little thing after all. This is an amazing giant thing and God is good for it. But let me ask you, this all starts with coming to Jesus and accepting his gift on the cross. For the way that he paid for our sins. He didn't just pay for black people or white people or young people or old people. And he looks at all of us and he says, the needs, see, our needs are the same too. We're all sinners. And we stand guilty before God unless he does something about it. And he did. And he offers no different for a Jew than a Gentile. For a kid than an adult. I don't want to give you the chance to say yes to him. And if you, and if you are saying yes, if you have said yes, I want to give you the chance with me to say, all right, God, no, almost. I don't want to slip at the finish line. I don't want to kick and watch it bounce off the rail. I don't want to celebrate, but only to wipe out and watch somebody else go past me. I want to run this race to win it. Pray with me, would you please? God, I thank you for this beautiful text as we prepare for this gorgeous Matthew 13 chapter. Lord, I realize that you are speaking to people that you know you will call sons of hell for those that opposed you here not because they simply opposed you but because of why and they know that must break your heart and then as if things couldn't get worse then your family shows up to rescue you from you and how horrible that must be and yet in the midst of that you refused all temptation to offer the perfect sacrifice so that we could actually be right with you to pay our price at the cross for all of our sin and shame and filth and then to raise from the dead on the third day to offer us a brand new life. And here in this room, if there be anyone who is yet to say yes to this gift of Jesus Christ, you may not understand everything, but if you know that if you're willing, you know that God is really willing to pay for all of your crimes of your heart, you'd be a fool to say no. I'm going to pray a prayer I ask you to listen, and at the end I ask you to say amen, and what you're saying is, I agree. Let that be my prayer now. And here it is. God, in heaven, I'm a sinner. And I know my sin separates me from you. Because you're a perfect, holy God. But I believe that you so love me that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for me. So that all of my crimes could be paid upon you instead of me. And you proved it was enough by raising him from the dead. So that I knew there's a new life on the other side. And if what you're simply asking is for me to receive that payment, the payment of Jesus at the cross, well then I say yes. And I confess Him as my Lord and Savior. And I give you right now to come and live inside of me and take me over. That I would be somebody of word and deed. That I would be somebody where you dwell within me and make me part of the family. So Father in heaven, I call you now Father. Saying thank you for your adopting love. Adopt me as your own now. 
as I give myself to you in Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. Lord, today as well now, for those who have called on your name, who claim you as our Lord and Savior, I pray right now that you would make us people, Lord, that would not confuse the world. If Jesus could be confused by these religious leaders, well, then certainly the world would be all the more. Don't let us be that convoluted in our Christianity. How crazy would it be for us to be one without the other? So make us people both in word and in deed to love. To be selfless and surrendered and serving. To give our life that we might give life. I pray that we would live the kind of life that reflects you in kindness and in sternness. But also, that whatever we do, we would do it in your name, Jesus. We would give you the glory. And I pray in that, that you would come and dwell so well in us that there would be no area of our lives, no area of our beings that would be in any way not reconciling with you. And that you would make this the family you designed it to be. As we commit ourselves to you now, make those changes. Make us brave. Make us bold. Make us strong, but not for ourselves, but for your glory. Make us family. But first and foremost, make us completely yours. Jesus, in your name. Amen.